Hello, and welcome to another episode of Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. If you're enjoying these stories, don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button and feel free to share Chuck's stories with family and friends as often as possible. Immediately following our story, Chuck will have a chat with myself, producer Joe Serino, and our music composer, Mr. Scott Lewis, revealing some of the stories behind the stories and some of Chuck's thoughts about the people and the places and the things and, and the times in which these stories took place. Thanks for listening, and here now is Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. This story is called Washing the Old Man. After Florida, the grandparents moved in with us. That is to say, we had by then moved into their house on First Street, and they had returned from the South confused. They, like thousands of elders before them and millions to follow, had been sold a bill of goods. The aged go south to where the weather is always nice. They went south and for the first time in their lives discovered boredom. They returned a few months later. Heebie-jeebie, my granddad, he was angry. Nothing but old people down there. I can't stand living with a bunch of old people. Complain all the time about their health. It ain't normal to just live with old people. For a short while they lived in a little cottage in Slotsburg, but soon they returned to their home with us. It was crowded. I didn't mind it. Heebie-jeebie was back, and he was better. Sometimes he'd forget where he was and start to think he was in another place from years ago. Watch out! I just seen Ikey sneaking around the side of the house. He would recount an episode with somebody named Ikey. This concerned a fight from the 1930s, and the more he told the story, the worse the fight got. Ikey was a biter, but I bit him back, almost tore off his ear. When he woke up in the middle of the night and started to shout that a team of horses were coming at him, he woke up the entire house before he calmed down the horses. He had to calm down each one of them by name. Then he went on a soap strike. He just decided to stop washing with soap. Grandma complained to Walt that she couldn't get him to wash. So he called Uncle Mal, and they decided it was time to wash heebie-jeebie. I agreed with Grandpa. I hated soap. It was Saturday morning, and the women all left the house. I stayed behind with a bad case of measles. I was covered from head to toe with little spots. And because measles was considered a dangerous disease to be outside with, I was kept in the house. Tessie had come to believe that when you had the measles, if you looked at the sun, you could go blind. So she kept me in the house the whole time, and they kept a big pair of sunglasses on my face as a safety just in case I looked out a window, which is just what I was doing on that morning. Out in the backyard, I watched Uncle Mal and Walt talking with heebie-jeebie. And then suddenly they grabbed him. They grabbed him by his arms. They started to pull him back toward the house. Mal is the bigger of the sons, so he mostly pushed while Walt mostly pulled on him. But heebie-jeebie fought them. He got an arm free. He swung around trying to hit them, and they all fell onto the porch floor, thundering into a collection of empty Coca-Cola bottles. I kept out of sight, just below the windowsill. They fought their way to the back door. I heard one of them twisting the doorknob. I was on all fours now, so I scampered under the kitchen table. When the back door swung open, I backed into the place where our dog used to sit so I could feed him whatever it was I didn't want to eat at supper. From down there, I could see their six legs struggling back and forth until they slammed into the table. I barked, but no one heard me. They were all shouting. And then... 
then their legs charged into the dining room, and I, now the family dog, behind a pair of sunglasses, chased after them. Before they could see me, I bolted under the dining room table. The shouting was now turning into grunting and heaving as they pushed and they pulled at him to get him to the stairs, and then the cluster of their weight dropped to the floor with a heap, sort of like wet lumber, only heebie-jeebie landed in my direction. He saw me under the table. He barked at me. Woof, woof. I barked back. Ruff, ruff. Walt Mal got him up. He was a little stunned from the fall, so they managed to get him halfway up the stairs before he reached up and braced against an overhead beam. Now with Walt above and Mal below, they were stuck. Walt pulled, Mal pushed, but Grandpa held onto that beam and there was no moving him. He stared down at Mal and he sneered at him. No boy of mine gets the best of me. Uncle Mal tickled him. He be giggled. He lost his grip and Walt grabbed around his arms. Mal laughed out loud. Hebe kicked him in the particulars, sending him down the stairs and to the floor. He hit it like a stone. When he landed to the floor, the entire house shook. This brought that big-headed family pet, in other words, me, out to bite him. He fought me off, and he charged upstairs, coughing violently. The bathroom door slammed. I ran upstairs, and I peeked through the keyhole. There was Hebe-Jeebe's face as they pulled off his clothes and started to wash him. He cursed, he shouted, he swore that he was going to bite off their ears. The sound of the soap cake thumped on the tile. Very carefully, I turned the doorknob until I could feel the door was no longer shut tight. I threw it open and I charged in. The three of them fell quiet and stared at me. He was breathing heavy. Actually, they all were. Walton Mal stood on either side of Grandpa, who sat with most of his clothes pulled off, soapy water dripping from his shoulders. The trousers were down around his knees, and there slung between his legs was a plastic bottle with a hose, a personal lavatory. Heebie-jeebie shouted, Look out, Ikey, I'll bite your ear! And I barked at him. They put me out of the bathroom. I heard the fighting start up again. I ran downstairs and out the back door and into the sun-drenched porch. There were Coke bottles all over the place. Their bottles were ringed in caramel stains. Some of them had trapped houseflies with sticky paper deep inside them. I bent over and stuck a finger into one of the bottles, and then swinging it between my legs, I danced into the sun and tore off the shades, and I barked like a dog. Way back in the early 70s, there was a a little bookstore in Suffern called Camelot. And it was the sort of place that poets and writers could hang out in and drink coffee and chew the fat about literature and politics. I knew the women who ran it, Beverly and Claire. And when they closed it down, it was a loss to the community down there. That sense of community around reading can't be artificially created either. It's, It's an organic sort of thing. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that we find at the Montgomery Book Exchange. You might bring up some books you're through with, chat over with Walt at the book exchange about the nature of some of the titles, get yourself a cup of coffee next door at the Iron Cafe, and then browse the shelves. Maybe pull down something and take it out back and hunker down for a spell. Sounds nice. Scotty, have you been to the book exchange yet? Well, I got the bag of books Nina wants me to take up there in the car. Uh Uh-huh. Scott, Mm -hmm. that was two weeks ago. And I'm heading up there now. No, you're not. Today is Monday. It's the only day of the week this bookstore is closed. So check out the website for their hours or call 845-764-1787. You know, 
Maybe we'd better go with you to the book exchange in Montgomery, New York. Road trip. What an experience for a kid. Oh, my God. There are so many things about that story. I don't know where to begin <laughs> asking you questions. Raging against the dimming of the light is what comes to my mind, yes, you know, yes. that he just yes. was not about to, to uh, acquiesce here, you know. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage into the dying of the light. It was real Dylan Thomas at the core, mm. even though I'm sure he never read Dylan Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was that experience. Yeah. Y you were making adjustments for what was happening, because it had to be frightening, right? Oh, yeah. You never saw your father or your uncle. That's why I became a dog. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you just decided, okay, I can't, can't be Chuck right now. I've yeah, I, I couldn't be the, the son, nephew, or grandson, because you know this is how you protect yourself. Yeah. And dogs are about protecting, you know, the home. Sure. But he understood that. I know. <laughs> when he went down, he responded That's in kind. The thing. When, when he comes to, to that moment, it's, we don't, we're not in his head in the story, but it seems like he, he switches gears, sees you, and knows exactly what to do in a heartbeat. And to me, that's... That shows the connection that the two of you had mm. all along, mm. that you think the same way in a stressful situation. I think that's true. And, and Tessie was afraid of that, interestingly enough. She worried that uh, I spent so much time with him, which she thought was good. But on the other hand, he seemed to her, um, well, you know, he was he fantasized and he slipped in and out of different time frames. And she wondered... What would be my reality? Would I do that too? And I think I was well into it with him. Yeah. So he he was definitely having, you know, some I, I don't know that you would call it Alzheimer's, but maybe some levels of dementia at that point in his life. Yeah, and and it's like we were in the we were in the living room once, and the, the team of horses thing, you know, that he talked about. All of a sudden, he shouted at me to get my legs off the floor. You know, we're in in chairs and get get your feet up because the horses will trample your feet and then the two of us watched as the horses came charging through the front of the house and through the middle of the room and out the back of the house in my memory i saw horses mm. now he placed them there for me yeah but clearly i accepted that they were there because we were responding to them somehow and Tessie, my mom, see, Walt didn't care one way or another. You see, horses, fine, there are horses there, you know. <laughs> Tessie struggled with the reality, you know, of, of the thing. And, and this was the great complexity that she was faced with, you know. How, how fantastic can you allow your child to experience the world around him when, you know, there's real things, too, that you must know. And that's a big part of, of her, what she brought to us kids. Right. And he challenged it all the time, you know, just by the nature of who he was. Yeah, even at that point in his life, still oh, challenging. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And Walt, his major concern was, you can have horses in the dining room, but don't let them make a mess here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get right. them the hell out before they make a mess. And if they do, clean it up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> man, oh, man. But, you know, for me, this story also, how do we cope the end of life, the, the, that phase can be wondrous. Um, 
in some ways, Walt would talk about Grandpa after he was gone as slipping back to all the way back to childhood, you know, and then forward again, moving around, you know, and uh, and that can be wondrous. But living in in the world that we live in, you need to find mechanisms by which you can cope with this because it's teaching you new things about these people that you grew up with that you thought you always knew, and these are different things now. And and how do you cope with it? It's so interesting because Tessie, of course, had Alzheimer's, and uh, and we uh, and we worked with that, and and we used chelation therapy, and we uh, drew aluminum chlorhydrates from her system, and she came back to us, which was one of the things you can do. It's one of the one of the causes of Alzheimer's are heavy metals. Grandpa worked in the ironworks. I mean, <laughs> the metal yeah. doesn't get much heavier, but um, but during that time. With Tessie, and that time went on for a few months. I I literally met a different Tessie. You know, the the cynical, biting wit wasn't there. There was another Tessie. It's still her, but it was another with other stories about a lot of the same characters in her life, but from a different perspective. And that's something. And wow. then we knew she was getting well when the cynicism came back. <laughs> Interestingly like enough. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is really something. It's a very, very difficult disease, more so, I think, for the people who love the person so afflicted mm-hmm. because you're in effect, and you just kind of describe it, you're losing a person, a human being that you know, and it's being replaced by what else is left. And, uh, and then when it wavers in and out, I think it, it might have even been tougher because you – you realize, oh my God, she's still there. She's mm-hmm. still in there. You know, mm-hmm. boy, it's tough. It, it, it challenges everything. It challenges your sense of personhood, of the soul, mm-hmm. of humanity, of God. You know, everything. Because who, who then are we? Yeah, yeah. It's it's existential. <laughs> it's the ultimate existential experience for the individual that they're suddenly in this great awakening. But is it so great? You know, <laughs> it's scary. Right, and I always wonder if the individual going through it, at least initially, I think is probably very scared by what's happening, but at what point does the person that it's happening to give over to it and just becomes this new iteration? Well, this is so interesting because Alzheimer's is sort of an umbrella. It covers really a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, so what could be helpful to one patient would be helpful to another. To to Grandpa, to the heebie-jeebie man, I don't know if it was clinical Alzheimer's as much as he'd had such a full life with so many things going on, and now it's coming to rest. And he's got time because he's not working, and he's just revisiting these places all the time. Like Ike, the fellow he got in the fight with, he revisits, and that fight got bigger and bigger every time he, he told the story. Somewhere in there is the actual event. And revisiting it, you know, like the expression, you are the history of your past. Mm. And your, 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 your past doesn't exist without your perception of what it is from this time, from where we are right now. And as his version of the Ike story changes, that doesn't make it less real for him. It makes it more real for him. Right. He's delving into it, into places where his fears might have been, you know, and, and it becomes more real. 
I, I spent a lot of time uh, working with uh, uh, Vietnam vets over the years, uh, t- listening to their stories and and uh, understanding them, and you know, being allowed to hear them. You know, uh, friends of mine. And what I discovered after about twenty years is the stories got deeper and more revealing, and you could say, hmm, maybe they become romanticized, maybe they've been elaborated with some sort of political agenda. But what was really happening, I believe, is they were now at some safer distance allowing themselves to feel what they needed to feel in order to exercise the story. And they just became more difficult to hear, but more revealing. And maybe that too is a part of what storytelling is about. Well, I think humans as an animal are metaphoric creatures. And I think one of the things our society doesn't, one of the many things our society doesn't understand is things like memory are not a linear, you know, computer recorded uh, video of what happened, but a reflection, like you're saying, of, of who we are now, but also what we may have wanted it to be or superimposing some kind of morality over what actually happened. And I don't know that you can ever separate those. And I think earlier cultures got that right away. So, you know, an an Indian uh, group would would tell a story that has very little to do with what actually happened, but it has everything to do with how you're supposed to feel about those events so that the people listening take away the right lesson, you know? Yes. And I think as you get, whether it's Alzheimer's or any of these, this umbrella we're talking about, we're allowing the individual to maybe get back to that more human kind of existence where you're just talking about or, or even acting out sometimes what you took away from the events rather than the journalistic experience of what happened. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Really interesting, Scott, because you're, you're right. We, we are our memories. I mean, that's, really who we are, we're, we're our memories. If you cast that off, or if that gets taken in some way, then then what's left is the meaning behind the memories. And maybe that's kind of a wonderful thing in its own right. You know, I'm a, I'm a little worried about talking about this, but I'm going to, my, my wife's mother, my mother-in-law, this magnificent woman who's been so through so much in her life and, and uh, you know, given a whole life to to a child that was born deaf and blind and and uh, you know made him whole just by her love her and my father-in-law another remarkable human being she's starting to get forgetful and it's really hard for the people that who love her and she's starting to to lose certain facts and cogencies you know things that just happened or whatever and recently, my wife asked her, you know, does it bother you that you're forgetting things? And she said, no, no. And it occurred to me that she, she said it that way and because she's still happy, because she's with the people she loves, because the meaning is still there, because mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. is still there. Mm-hmm. And that as long as that exists, whatever else happens, we will, we will get through this. We'll all get through it together. We'll be okay. I mean, she's also just a brave person, a courageous person. But, but uh, 
She, I believe her. I believe that it doesn't bother her. I believe that she's just, she loves her daughter and her wonderful husband and her sons and both daughters. And that's her life. That's everything to her. That is the meaning of life. You know, it's sort of like in, in the story when I'm talking about uh, heebie-jeebie and, and Holder, they, they come back from Florida. They were sad because they were down there. He complained that they shouldn't have gone down there. And he complained to Uncle Mal about this. And he sort of blamed Mal. Mal was the big organizer of, you know, the house in Florida, golden years scenario. And he said, literally, there are no, there are no kids down there. Old people got no reason to even be around if they ain't got kids. You know, and it, it's like that. It's their stories become, you know, the food on which the children survive. They, they absorb it. And, yeah. uh, and without the kids, what's the point? Ain't that the truth? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Well, heebie-jeebie has given us a lot to think about. This. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till next week. <laughs> oh, man. That guy. Gee. Well, listen, this has been great. This was episode 10. So uh, we're, we're getting close to the end of the first season, which I think ends after episode 12, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I look forward to next week. Can't wait. And uh, once again, remind everybody, please let your friends and family know about this and share and join our conversation by all means. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning at 9 a.m., so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. <laughs>